Okay, I got two, let's see, three text messages to send the, the, the recording <laughs> because people are in transit someplace or, oh, and let's see, um, yeah, one person has an appointment. Okay, so that's a good thing. So we will start the second module of 321's weekly sales accountability sessions. And uh, the word accountable is, is, is a good, great word for sales and what accountability means is uh, you're willing to report to someone about your past week's activities or what you plan to do this current production week. And the, 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 the behind it, it was in corporate that we used this and other people use this in different uh, sales organizations, whether it's uh, in like a salary base or whether it's a 1099 uh, contractor base. But the point of the sales accountability session is to have someone to talk to you about what you said you were going to do or to also to report uh, some good things that you experienced in your past sales week and also some some things that um, were maybe not so good, but but they served as a learning experience. So um, for my sales accountability, I'm just letting people know that, um, you know, this week, my goal is to contact 160 businesses because it's mainly businesses that I deal with. And out of that 160, 75% will be for my uh, 3T1 uh, sales clients. So that means about 40 will be for uh, 321 calling, you know, outbound businesses to, to find new uh, B2B sales training opportunities. And 120 will be for, uh, you know, five or six people that I work with uh, across the U.S. to help them uh, set appointments for their businesses. And so that's uh, so that's how the weekly that's how sales accountability is, is supposed to work. And it's very effective. One of the uh, things about or one of the, the benefits of sales weekly accountability meetings is that it always makes people feel kind of squeamish at first. So if you feel squeamish about, you know, reporting your, your activity to people or, or reporting, you know, maybe if you didn't have any activity, maybe you're, you're trying to you know, get your, your sales uh, game going. When I mean game, I mean that mental part. Even if you're trying to get your sales game started and you may not have anything to report for the first couple of sessions, that is exactly what's supposed to happen because sales accountability is a growth uh, process. It's a growth to have people you know, say, okay, I really want to make more money in my business and what steps do I need to take to get there? Well, there's contacting the prospecting part that those are, you know, 50, 60, 70 percent of the process of of, um, you know, being accountable to your business is to start that that contacting and prospecting part. And uh, so if you have any challenges with that, what your mind will say is, OK, you know, I'm, I got to go on the, the weekly accountability, you know, session with other people. I want to have something to say. And that's a good thing that, that shows that, you know, salespeople are interested in growing their business when they say, I want to come on and have something to say, even if I only passed by five people this week and said hello. I have to have something to say. 
that of course, you know, the best case scenarios are I said something, I got the person's uh, contact information. Okay, so that's like a, a great scenario. But even a better scenario is I got the person's contact name, uh, phone number, email, and I booked an appointment. So that's, uh, so that's how weekly sales scenarios are supposed to go. So also on the, the weekly sales, on the weekly accountability sessions, what we're gonna do, if you want to talk about any type of, of a pr productivity, victory, or situation, even if that situation turned out to be a challenge, or any type of uh, you know business uh, uh, victory that you had, where you actually you know added a new client. All right, so I'll just I'll share one of my uh, experiences <clears throat> I had this week or just past week. There was uh, an IMO that stands for Insurance Marketing Organization down in the San Diego area, and I was calling on behalf of some insurance brokers that I want to you know help with their uh, insurance sales but some of their their the, the current IMOs that they're with are not as effective in helping the insurance brokers uh, market their products more effectively in other words there's not much support other than the um, the IMO having products there's not a lot of support so I got a referral from Cherry who's a insurance broker in uh, El Dorado County, which is the same county as Lake Tahoe, and she referred me to uh, like a great IMO down in San Diego. So to make a long story short, I called and, and had a conference call with the uh, IMO uh, director of, of marketing, almost like a like the vice president. And the company has a hundred hundred employees, and what they do is they help insurance brokers across the country have a great experience in their insurance businesses. So they're, they're not um, like some of the IMOs that are out there that uh, just recruit you and sign you up with these different carriers. And then they say, okay, Joe, go do it. Just, you know, just do it. So I had a conversation with uh, Mark and Mark wanted to know more about 321. So I gave him like a, like a two minute spiel about Three, two, one, and so, to, so to, again to make the, the story real short, Mark said, "Our company, our his IMO, cannot do what three, two, one Biz Dev does." And he gave me a lot of kudos for the fact that I am out there outside the bubble. We will talk about that probably on our next weekly session. What outside the bubble means? So three, two, one's outside the bubble. His organization is inside the bubble with these hundreds if not thousands of insurance agents and they're not able to give them that training to help them be more effective in sales. They have a great, you know, back-end marketing system. They have a great platform for sending out brochures and, and bringing the best product training to agents across the country. But they don't have the front-end piece and the sales training to help their insurance brokers, you know, uh, contact, prospect, set appointments, and effectively close. So that's one of my stories I had from this past week. So let's begin today's uh, weekly sales accountability session 
in which the subject is um, believe in your product or service, believe your product or service provides value, and believe in your sales system. So I'm going to make this screen smaller. I think that when that happens, huh. All right. All right. Sorry for that mix. I got to figure out how to get get past that little glitch. So again, this is the second module, the 321's weekly sales accountability sessions. And uh, the disclaimer is always the 321 sales system is for white collar salespeople and business owners seeking to build their sales skills. Now uh, for belief, I'm going to refer to this book called The Path of Least Resistance uh, for this uh, weekly accountability uh, session. and. The, the dictionary definition of the path of least resistance is the path or line of least resistance, phrase of resistance, an option avoiding difficulty or unpleasantness, the easiest course of action. So the book is, is talking about, um, you know, that's the theme of the book, the, the path of least resistance, but the book goes deeper than just the title, which was kind of interesting to me. Now, how I found out about this book, I cannot remember how I found out about this book. I've had it for about four years. The book copy that I have is kind of beat up. It's all highlighted inside. The entire book is highlighted because I read the entire book probably several times. And what I liked about this book was that it really uh, uh, took a deep dive into the subject of how we come up with our belief system. And the author, his name is Robert Fritz. He was a musician in the Boston Conservatory. So this guy was an accomplished uh, uh, musician. I believe he played cello or, or he was a, a bassist in the Boston Conservatory. So as a musician, he started noticing how musicians were very creative. And so I, before I continue talking about the book, let me change the slide. So this is the picture of the book. It's called The Path of Least Resistance, and it's Learning to Become the Creative Force in Your Own Life uh, by Robert Fritz. So on page nine, so what I decided to do was to go through several pages of the book and really sort of highlight what the book is about. I do recommend uh, people read the book, especially if you're if we're working together because it will kind of give you some comfort in not only using the 321 sales system but maybe there's something else that you're working on in your business life or even your personal life and you're trying to find solutions uh, to those situations or challenges this book will help you understand perhaps why you might be having challenges and it will also allow you to remove junk solutions from the true solutions and that's the best way I can describe it without uh, reading the entire book to you so on page 9 of the book on the copy that I have it says oscillation the feeling of being in a rut or winding back at square one in your business and that is really a common uh, a common occurrence for people in business they'll you know, have some, some victories, you know, maybe five or 10% of the time. And then they'll go out and try 
what they want to do the next time and it won't work out and they'll find themselves back in the rut, maybe not feeling good about what they're doing. Um, some of the symptoms of oscillation is sales progress is temporary and psych psychotherapists claim that something is wrong with you um, when you have temporary sales setbacks, but it's not it's not you, it's the sales structure that people are working under. So what I did was I, I used this book and I overlaid some sales uh, uh, industry situations and challenges on top of what this was taught, what the book was talking about. And the, and the guy, he does talk about selling, but he really talks about, uh, you know, uh, oscillation in a very generic form, but it's very easy to correlate what he's talking about in a very generic form to uh, selling. So this is what oscillation is. Oscillation is this back and forth, you know, never having a like a solid line or at least a, a line that continually goes from left uh, to right and going up. And bad structure or bad sales systems or no sales system systems create oscillation. So this is a great uh, image that you see on your screen of what oscillation is. You never are able to, you know, have a solid uh, line of performance. It's almost better to have a solid bad performance than to oscillate because you just can't figure it out. Now on page 11, uh, what the author talks about, he says the incorrect way to sell, trying to look back to what you did wrong, what you said wrong. Okay, so that's very common in the sales environment where uh, people say, well, I didn't get that business, so what did I do wrong? So let me look back and see what I did wrong. But the correct way to sell is to create a system. So I will, I will repeat this a little bit. The, this top part that says the incorrect to sell, that means that you didn't have a system and you were just winging it. And so you, when things didn't go well, you say, oh, I, well, obviously I did something wrong. So let me go back and just change everything I was doing and, and start over and try something new. Page 11 also talks about the creative process or sales system uses structure, uh, that uses structure does not oscillate. So a sales system does not oscillate. And the book, The Least Path of Resistance is about creating what you want the outcome to be. So that's very important in anything that we're dealing with, whether it's sales or if it's life, you want to uh, try to create what, what you want that outcome to be. And uh, you might find out that it's easier than you think. You'll see why in a few minutes. Okay, so on page 12, it talks about the most creative people like jazz, musicians, artists, chefs, computer programmers, engineers, inventors. And he talked, it was a whole list of occupations that he talked about in terms of creative people. Uh, painters, photographers, graphic designers, actors, playwrights, uh, rock stars, um, you know, classical musicians. He says that often they have often have difficulty in their personal lives because they do not realize how amazing their creativity is. So just think about that for a second. You know, a jazz musician. So, you know, as a person that plays three or four instruments myself, and I've dabbled into jazz improv improv improvisation, you know, when I was in my teen years and a little bit, you know, my 19, you know, when I was 19 and 20, 
you know, that, that's very difficult. You, you hear something, you hear music and they say, okay, Rick, jump on in. And so you have to know about chord progressions. You have to know about, you know, key signatures. You have to know about minor scales, major scales. And then you have your horn in front of you, or if you're on a keyboard and you start playing something that's supposed to fit in with the, the solid structure of a song, a solid structure of a song that's in a certain key, that has a certain rhythm, that has a certain, you know, bass line. So what Robert Fritz is saying is that some of our most creative people uh, don't really know what they have, you know, what, what they've done. And they, they're not able to uh, translate their professional creativity into their personal creativity. So that was a, that was a great point. On page 14, uh, Robert talks about, as children, we are told to listen to grown-ups because they know best, and we mainly listen to them because they're much bigger than we are. <laughs> so we're, when we're like five or six years old, the adult is, you know, maybe, you know, five, eight, six foot two, you know, 200 pounds or, or bigger. So we listen to them because, you know, they're bigger than we are. And it's almost like a, a form of uh, bullying, but I, those are our parents. Those are the, the adults that we're around. So this mindset of listening to grownups carried through our childhood and it was necessary. Then as you got older, you began to, to conduct these things called experiments. And uh, you said, well, I was told to do it this way. I was told to uh, sell this way, or maybe you, you were not told to sell or trained how to sell, so you started experimenting. And then if you receive some good results on, on a temporary basis, you may have received some bad results on that temporary basis. So you came to the conclusion that some of the things that you were told as a kid or some of the things that you hear about doing business may not be always correct. And again, that could have, you know, some of those conclusions that you came out with could be, I found a better way of doing something through experimentation or through experimentation, I found out that what, what not to do, you know, whether my sales business or, or personal life. So on page 17, he talks about negative input. So negative input in the sales environment means that there's no sales system. And negative input with no sales system produces negative output, which is no sales. So too much poor sales results can cause salespeople to avoid negative outcomes. I mean, we're only human. So if you have too many negative outcomes in what you're doing in your business, you will stop doing sales. And that's, that's due, to, to, due to poor or, or no sales system. Because as humans, how we, how we behave is that if something is, 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 is favorable or is good to us, we, can, we normally continue it. And, uh, you know, in sales, it's, that's a great thing. In personal life, it might be called addiction. But um, so, again, negative input. No sales system produces negative output. On page 18, he talks about the reactive responsive orientation and this is when this book begins begins to get really good uh, so reactive response orientation that means that you you are reacting to something you're responding to something you're responding to some type of stimuli on you 
And uh, that stimuli could be, I had a bad sales appointment. And uh, when you have a, a bad sales appointment, like I mentioned earlier, sometimes you say, I want to fix it. Or you may say, I don't want to do it again. So those are reactive responses to you know situations. So um, take action based on circumstances. Our K through 12 education system teaches us how to respond instead of how to be proactive and to be creative. And we are sort of not, I mean, this is not a bad thing, but we were sort of brainwashed into learning how to pass an exam. So we don't think outside of the parameters of that exam because if we do, we may, call, we may experiment and, and really have bad results. So what we do is we try to focus focus in within the parameters of what we were taught. So if we're, so if we're taught, uh, let's say computer programming in school or even in college, uh, the professor says, okay, this is what I'm gonna grade you on, on your ability to write this, this program, write this application. Or if you're a CPA, we're going, I'm gonna test you on the use of certain uh, you know, accounting practices. And when you stay within those parameters, maybe you never even go outside to say, what if, you know, I look at it from this perspective. You know, if I'm writing the computer program, what if I want to change, what, hap what happens if I change this a little bit? Well, if you change something a little bit, yeah, you may not pass the exam, but you may find a brand new world of, of how you can use computer programming. And that's kind of like what uh, Bill Gates uh, did and, and Steve Jobs when they started Microsoft and, and Apple, you know, respectively. So again, K through 12 and these rigid systems teach us how to be reactive and responsive and never really to be creative. So on page 19, you know, to, to continue with the reactive orientation, it says, since I have had not much success in sales, sales must be hard. And uh, without a system, sales can be hard. So what people do that, that are not in the creative mode, so the book, so this book says, people avoid the sales industry because it looks so hard. And many of you have talked to people about selling and uh, oh no that's too hard oh that's way too hard and and they're they're correct you know with you know not having you know access to a system they may they may have seen something somebody do something and it didn't turn out to be successful or you know maybe it had some mental damage uh, when it comes to sales but um, so the reactive orientation is what most people in sales are dealing with since I didn't uh, close a deal ever, then sales must not be for me at all. Or since I used the training that this one company gave me, and the company must be right, right? I mean, the company is right because they're the company. So now we're talking about this, uh, this uh, you know, the big people concept. So the, the sales company must be right because they said, this is what I should do to be successful in sales. And if it doesn't work out, then it must be hard, or maybe there's something about you that's the uh, deficient component. You know, if, if it's you that can't do it and everybody else can do it, then, then it must be you. And that is so damaging to people when it comes to working in the sales industry. 
continuing with the reactive orientation, you presume you are powerless to change sales activity results because of circumstances. And those circumstances can be many. Uh, the ones that I hear a lot is because I'm not the right race, I'm not the right gender, I'm too tall, I'm too short, I'm too skinny, I'm too fat, I don't speak English well enough, I don't speak Chinese because I speak English too well, um, you know, I speak Spanish, so I don't speak English too well. So these circumstances are, you know, the, the generic forms of, of obstacles that stop us from selling. But within sales, the circumstance really is you really never learned how to sell. See, and uh, that's, that's, again, that's the sad part about, you know, sales organizations that don't have, uh, you know, proper sales training because people get to come up with so many reasons why they can't do it. And those are called circumstances. So on page 24, it talks more about uh, selling circumstantial stimuli, again, without a sales system. And here are some examples. The prospect didn't return my first phone call. Therefore, he or she is not interested. And I recall a story or incident uh, that I had um, about uh, two years ago with the San Francisco CPA. I may have told this story to some of you. I called this guy five times and this guy was a Chinese American. He was a US military veteran. And I always call veterans. I always, I always have a good thing about calling veterans. So I called him five times. And then on the sixth call, he picked up, he heard my name and said, Rick, I'm so sorry I didn't take your call. Um, I was so busy, I never had a chance to call you back. But he said, I will tell you something. You left the most professional voicemails I have ever, ever heard. Then he said, what can I do for you? How can I help you? Well, let's talk. So we ended up talking. And at that time, my product or service didn't match what he was looking for. But he basically, you know, gave me kudos and gave me the, I don't know, like the mark of excellence, so to speak, on making outbound phone calls. So this guy was like, you know, you know, he's a Chinese American guy, you know, probably doesn't get a lot of calls uh, from people like me. And, uh, but I, but I made the call. So the second example is after my 45 minute presentation, the prospect said no. So that circumstantial stimuli says, if you continue making 45 minute presentations, the prospect will probably say no. <laughs> and uh, there's no look, there's no, <clears throat> there's no thought about, well, maybe something's wrong with that 45 minute presentation. You know, people don't think about that. They just say, <clears throat> sorry, that morning voice is still kicking in. People say, well, it must be me because the 45 minute presentation that was designed by the company or big people. So we see again, this, this big people concept pop up. Well, since they, since they own the company, since they, you know, they are fairly successful because they have a building, then it must be something wrong with me and not, and not the uh, company. So then there's this thing called the preemptive strike on page 27. And the preemptive strike, strike I put that in red because that's, a, that's when um, most people are ready to get out of their business. 
and uh, and also the preemptive strike strike is also one that's not focused on on the prospect and it kind of works like this I will put my company's best interest over the prospects interest because it's better to show my intelligence to the prospect without knowing anything about him or her so preemptive means I am not going to let the prospect tell me that I don't know what I'm talking about. <clears throat> I would rather lose for other reasons, but I don't want the prospect to ever say <clears throat> that, um, that Carla didn't know what she was talking about. So what does Carla do? Carla goes in and just does a dump on this prospect. And recently, you know, Carla and I experienced this dump not to, like this last week where the person you know was was presenting their their, their offer to Carla <clears throat> man can't get rid of this morning voice and um, the person just dumped then at the end of the 45 minutes we just say hey we'll get back to you and uh, <clears throat> when I say I'm gonna get back to you that means I'm not getting back to you so the second preemptive strike is um, since my sales skills are so, so awful, it makes no sense to even try face-to-face -face or telephone prospecting because instead of you trying it or not say trying it, but instead of you having a sales system and trying it, you do the preemptive strike by saying, I'm not going to do it because my sales skills are so awful, I'm not going to even face-to-face -face prospect, I'm not going to pick up the, the telephone and, and call anybody. And that will, that will take care of me having any type of circumstantial stimuli that's negative. Page 27 continues, my business is conflict free because I preemptively avoid receiving certain negative outcomes. And that's because not using a sales system. So this preemptive strike uh, is also called procrastination. It's called uh, avoidance there's one called call reluctance where you do the preemptive strike and it, it, other forms of preemptive strikes may be well I gotta do something important in the house so I can't make that I can't get on the phone for two hours so what do you do important in the house maybe you change your brakes on your car you could have done that <clears throat> this evening but you did it during business hours or maybe you decided to measure the walls or measure the windows for new blinds. Because you because because it is definitely more important to get to that that store that's carrying the, that sells those blinds than it is to be on the phone for two hours. Because those blinds, getting those blinds for the house is way, way more important than getting on the phone for two hours. The reason why I'm saying this is because I've, I've, I, I have experienced this. I'm not, I'm not saying, you know, Rick doesn't, I experience this, you know, <laughs> kind of like on a daily basis, but I have to, but I recognize it, you know? And then if you, if you can't recognize it, you go out and you buy those blinds or you fix, your, fix those breaks during business hours. Page 31 talks about, now this is when it really became really uh, great. And we're about to end, because I can't go through every page of this book. But I do recommend people buying it, The Path of Least Resistance by Robert Fritz. Creating is no problem. Problem solving is not creating. 
So that's kind of like a tongue twister or, you know, it's like, uh, what are we talking about here? Problem solving is taking action for something to go away. And uh, it's like an objection handling technique. Um, so if you look at problem solving, that's like, okay, I got this problem and then I'm going to try to solve it. And in sales, that's typically the objection handling technique. Meaning, I'm going to go through my appointment with this person and I'm not going to care anything about this person at all. I'm just going to go through my 45-minute spiel. And then at the end, the person says no. Okay, there's the problem. The, person, the, pro the problem finally comes up. The problem is the person said no. So how do you solve that problem? With objection handling techniques to try to get that prospect to uh, revert or, or change their no to a yes. Very, very difficult. Most likely it won't happen. And if the person does buy, they're gonna cancel on you the next day. The next one is creating. The opposite of problem solving is creating. It's creating is taking action to have something come into being, which is creation. It's much harder to create than to problem solve. That's why people don't try to fix, you know, problems. That's why it's easier to just, uh, I'm just, I'll just work with the same system that I have. And, you know, when I get to the problem, I'll try to solve that problem. Okay. Most politicians, and this is not a political uh, training, but most politicians, or you can put poor sales training in there, focus on identifying problems. So they get people to say, if you vote for me, I will solve this problem. But they don't end up solving the problem. They just say, vote for me because I identified the problem. And then they get elected, and then they don't end up solving the problem. The problem just stays around for years and years and years. Same thing with, with sales. You know, uh, there's like thousands of organizations that don't solve the true problem of selling, but they identify it and they try to have these classes to help salespeople become more productive, to make more money, but they don't focus on uh, what the true issue is. So if salespeople are not selling enough, let's solve that problem by fixing unsolvable problems instead of creating sales systems so the key the key words here is fixing an unsolvable problem and you might see what i mean now uh the next screen page 33 says the creative process is recognizing what currently exists so if you recognize what currently exists that's the key to solving a, a problem or I like to say provide a solution so if you look at the um, the uh, sort of like the uh, the tongue twister or the the maze of what of how people solve problem, problems, it goes it goes like this. It's in the book, page thirty four. The problem leads to action to solve the problem, which leads to less intensity of the problem, which leads to less action to solve the problem, which leads to the problem remaining. So the key the, the key words here is that the problem never goes away. Because people say, oh, we got to take action. We got to put a team of people to solve that problem. So the people get on the team. They say, okay, we have made, we have diluted the problem. The problem is not as bad as it used to be, but it's still there. Which leads to, okay, since we had all these teams to, to uh, solve that problem, now the problem is less 
Therefore, we're not going to put as many people on the problem because the problem has been lowered, but the problem is still there. So on page 39, it says to, to a creator, the object of focus is the final result you want to create. So 321BizDev LLC started by creating the final desired result, then working backwards. So it kind of goes like this. Now this is, a re this is called reverse engineering. I don't think I've ever told too many people about this. Maybe one or two, but 321 is a reverse engineering marketing system. So we start at the top. Remember, we want to start where we want our, what, what we want our outcome to be. And our desired outcome is we want success. So the desired outcome is success. So let's go to the right. So how do we have success? We need to get the prospect to say yes. How do we get the prospect to say yes? Do we force the prospect to say yes? Do we, do we manipulate? Do we arm twist? Do we, we use um, slick sales tactics to get the prospect to say yes? No. We want the prospect to say, we want to get a yes because the prospect will make the decision to say yes. So how do we get the prospect to say yes? Well, if you, if you look to the left, the only person to truly make a yes decision or to make a decision, the, the prospect first has to identify his or her own problem. When the prospect identifies his or, own, his or her own problem, that's how doing reverse, reverse engineering, you get the prospect to make a decision. And then the final step, which is really the first step, but recall this is reverse engineering. So the final step in reverse engineering, but the first step in going out and, and meeting with people is getting the prospect to talk. So you can see using forward engineering, now that we have, now we have put together our reverse engineering method, the first thing we want to do is get the prospect to talk. The next thing we want to do is get the prospect to identify the problem. That's the purpose of the prospect interview form. The next thing we want to do is get the prospect to make a decision about the problem that they have identified. The next thing we want to do is get the prospect to agree that there needs to be a decision to fix that problem. And then ultimately, the salesperson has achieved their desired outcome, which is success or a sale. So let's move, we only have a few more slides left. So value, will your clients be better off with your product than without your product? That's what you have to have in your mind. The next one is, will your product do what it's supposed to do without fail? So let's talk about the first one. Will your prospects be better off with your product or service without than without? Your value that your product or service brings must be crystal clear in your mind before you see sales results. If yes, meaning your value, uh, your, your prospects will be better with your product or service than without. If yes, you are compelled to tell everyone about your product or service. And that's a mental, that's a mental advantage. When you know for sure that your product or service will put that prospect in a great position than they were without your product, you are compelled to tell everyone about your product. It's like a marching order. You know, once you've tr been trained up, once you have learned all the things you need to learn, and you are damn sure that your product is great or your service is great. 
by not telling you know people about your product or service causes some type of damage because you know you got a great product you know you're a great cpa you know you're a great dentist and if you have that supported by a great sales system there's no there's nothing stopping you from succeeding so if your product will not uh, put people in a better position or your service will not put people in a better position then you want to design a better product or service because if you know that once you sell your product or service and people will not have not see a change in what they had before they met you then you need to design a better product or service but if you're on this call that probably doesn't apply to you you must be able to define your product or service benefits and features in the heart hearts and minds of the prospects so value will your product or service do what it's supposed to do without fail after the prospect becomes a client will your product work your, ooh, I made some typos in this one will your product or service work it is best for your product or service to have an under promise and over delivery outcome so designing your product or service for optimal results three things take you totally out of the picture think only of the contact prospect mentally acknowledge prospect sensitivity to being challenged on their preconceived ideas your prospect is in the bubble so when you're meeting with people about your product or service you have to acknowledge that you know they are inside this bubble and their bubble sort of protects them from new ideas it provides comfort to them you know in a sense almost like a um, like a like a like a baby inside the you know inside the uh, the, the mom in that uh, in that sack. So the prospect's bubble has limitations to what they can understand initially. That's why you want to use that reverse engineered uh, sales process. Your job is to expand the bubble's boundaries of that prospect. You know if you can, or maximize the prospect's current situation in that bubble. Maybe you can only go so far. There was a client that a CPA was working with um, down in Southern California. After we learned more about that, um, that dental prospect, we discovered that that prospect's bubble or their limitation cannot be expanded. So because of you know, financial reasons, logistical reasons. So therefore, the only thing we can do is help that prospect maximize their performance, their their uh, you know pro, you know bring a, 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 a the best sales experience we can bring to that prospect within their bubble within their limitation, or you can remove the bubble. So that's the last step. So plan sales system. You've seen this before. Very important. The number one reason for you to be motivated to offer your product or service is number one. There must be a problem to solve. I can't believe I didn't finish that sentence. I will though. <laughs> there must be a problem to solve in order for you to be motivated to offer your product or service. The number one goal when meeting with the prospect is you must begin a dialogue with the prospect with the premise that there is a problem to solve. The prospect appointment starts at a 50% yes point. That's very important. So you meet with that prospect. A lot of salespeople think, Oh, I gotta like I gotta develop this thing from zero. No, you've already you already have the meeting. 
So you're starting at 50%, at a 50% yes point, 50%, you know, no, you're in the middle. So your sales system determines if 50% continues to go up to 60, 70, 80, or goes down to 40, 30, zero. Okay, there's that slide. Wow. Oh, I'm going backwards. <laughs> oh, man. Okay, so that concludes today's um, weekly accountability session. And I'll probably re-record this because <laughs> I, I noticed I think, I think what happened, I, um, I got distracted and I was doing something, so I didn't finish that part. But you get the gist about what we talked about today, which is having a... Um, you know, believe in your product or service, uh, having it having value in your in your sales system. So I'm gonna stop the recording. So if anyone, if you have any feedback from the day, please 